that has the air of finality to it. <laughs> what a beautiful song. Christ is risen. Amen. Let me pray. Blessed Father, how glorious to us is the gospel. We thank you for Christ. Now, Spirit of God, hover over us, brood over us, enlighten our minds with truth, soften our wills out of love for you, and delight the affections of our heart, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. The doctrine undergirding where we are in Colossians 3. Listen to Samuel Rutherford as he describes a doctrinal perception that I had not encountered before, but it is profound. <clears throat> Samuel Rutherford, Puritan divine, member of the Westminster Assembly, probable composer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Quote, I have now made a new question, whether Christ is to be more loved for giving sanctification or for free justification. Catch that. And I hold that he is more and most to be loved for sanctification. It is in some respect greater love in him to sanctify than to justify. For he maketh us most like himself in his own essential portraiture and image in sanctifying us. Justification doth make us happy, which is to be like angels only. And neither is it such a misery to lie as a condemned man and be under unforgiven guilt as to serve sin and work the works of the devil. And therefore, I think, sanctification cannot be bought. It is above price. 1637. <laughs> <clears throat> One aspect of this justification achieved actively in 33 years and then at the cross subsequently gifted to faith. Sanctification uh, and note the punctilier point in time of the cross. But sanctification means 
putting up with me and you for however long he leaves us on this earth. That is more amazing, perhaps. Back up. Justification represents the gospel indicative. Remember, the grammar of the gospel moves from indicative to imperative. What God has done for us in Christ to what response we are to therefore give. Imperative commands. So justification represents the grand indicative of what God has done. The great exchange, our sins on Christ and Christ actively achieved righteousness to us through faith. God damns the innocent man, the only innocent man, so that he might pronounce guilty men and women justified, legally declared straight or just in Christ. Justification changes our position with God. Huge. Second Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he, the Father, made him the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the glorious gospel graces flow from this forgiveness, redemption, reconciliation, ransom, justification, all point to God's actions, the indicative of the gospel on sinners' behalf. Sanctification, though, <laughs> represents the grand imperative of what God does in us and to us through the agency of the Blessed Holy Spirit with our cooperating obedience. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling imperative. For it is God who is at work both to will and do his purpose in dictative. Thus, it is customary on Resurrection Sunday to examine the great indicative of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so I have spent Forty years preaching, always looking at the indicative, <laughs> but not today. Today, our text, while focused decidedly on Christ's resurrection, asks the question, is there a gospel imperative that flows out of the resurrection indicative? Yes.
ascension follows resurrection. Ascension follows resurrection. It was true of blessed Christ. It must be true of the trajectory of our thoughts, our lives, our attitudes, our life song. Ascension, set your mind on things above. Ascension follows resurrection. Paul tells the church in Colossae that they not only died with Christ, but were raised from the dead with him. And he had already sounded this grand theme in chapter 2, verse 12. The question is, what does Christ being raised on high enthroned on the Father's right hand. What does that mean for those of us who are united with him in his death and resurrection? Because we continue to live our lives in this sin-sick world. But we have been placed on a heavenly upward path to glory and the glory which is even now, sweet Jesus, in Emmanuel's wondrous land, draws us, beckons us upward toward him. Thus, the believer's interests, appetites, desires, longings are centered on Christ Jesus. And it is the blessed, sanctifying Spirit of God that draws our minds, our wills, and stirs our affections to the heavenly realm where Christ is. So Paul says, look, look at your text, uh, Colossians 3.1. Paul says, Keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That is a present imperative, a direct command in the now, not future. Thy king and thy head give command here to seek and keep seeking the things above where Christ is. And the verb of command expresses constant, close attention, intensity of aim. It could be said, <clears throat> let your whole meditation be as to this things above. You'll remember that beginning with 2.12, Paul says that with every remembrance of our baptism 
and its meaning. We ought be impressed afresh with the reality of our participation in Christ's death and resurrection and draw the logical gospel conclusions. If Christ's death severed the chains binding us under the domain of darkness, Christ's resurrection established new relational bonds of grace binding us to a new heavenly order in which Christ is sovereignly supreme. <laughs> Remember who Christ is. He's not just head of the church. He is the supreme ruler potentate over all creation. Huge. That'd be like finding out our praying for a new pastor is the next president of the United States. Only it'd be a lot bigger than that. Let your whole meditation be on this. My friend, hear me carefully. Believers have no private life of their own. No. Believers have, you might think you do, you don't. Believers have no private life of their own. I'll give Jesus this but I'll keep all this for myself. Uh-uh. Doesn't work. Calvin writes, This is a true and holy thinking as to Christ, which bears us up to heaven, that we there may adore him and our mind dwell on him. Pastoral reflection. You have to have your Bible open seeking him to do this. Hello? You have to have your Bible open seeking him to do this. God's children have Bible reading histories and plans always what is yours he is asking that today verse 2 Paul says set your mind on things above not things on earth now this verb Set your mind. Fascinating. Listen to this. It has its root in the Greek word for the midriff diaphragm. Midriff or diaphragm giving the idea 
of a deeply felt gut level felt even physically intense directing of one's interest. One lexicon said the world was regarded as a seat of intellectual and spiritual activity. It was the diaphragm breath out which determined the strength of the breath and hence also the spirit and its emotions. So it precisely refers to the ability not only to think, but also to control one's thoughts, to control one's inner attitude of mind. It is the heart as the seat of passions, as well as the mind as the seat of mental faculties. In fact, it's very interesting. You should know this passage. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the very form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You know this passage. Have this attitude, same word. Ah. Set your mind could perhaps be read Colossians 3 2. Set your attitude on things above. Oh, that radically deepens my understanding. It's not enough to say, think about heaven. Clouds, fat, puffy angels, I'm done. No, set your attitude on things above. Pastoral reflection. Where is the appetite of your attitude. Think about that, please. Where is the appetite of my attitude? What is my attitude towards the Father God? What is my attitude towards the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ? What is my attitude toward his dealings with me? Some of us are going through hard times, <coughs> relational times. What is your attitude towards what he has allowed to happen? Where does my attitude direct my thoughts, my emotions, my desires? See, set your mind on things above. The Sunday school answer is think about heaven once in a while. 
That's not what here is commanded. Paul is saying, don't let your ambitions be earthbound, set on transitory, temple, inferior objects. Don't look at life, the universe, your existence from the standpoint of these temple things. Look at your life from Christ's exalted place as supreme ruler of all creation and the church. Wow. Judge everything by the standards of the new creation to which you have been transferred and to which you now belong, not by the standard of the domain of darkness to which you have said so long, you have said so long, haven't you? To the domain of darkness. If you're in Christ, you have, though you may still be flirting with what's on the other side of that fence, Satan's domain. I realize that. The point of the Christian life is not to see how close to the fire you can get. The point of the Christian life is to stay as far from the fire as you can in Christ. Some of us have some singe marks on our bodies. We once soaked our mind, soaked it, I say, in the propaganda of darkness. But now, now we love Christ and seek him in his glorious word. Why does Christ teach that we must seek the things that are above? It is because thy life dear believer, is above. Your life has been hidden with Christ in God. That means something you cannot see tangibly, but is eternal, huge. Death goes before resurrection. Hence, both of them must be, will be, the Bible says, seen in the child of God. Both the death to the old domain of how you think and how you lust and how you covet and how you talk and express your anger and your frustration. That's the old world that the believer has died to. 
Christian, the new life into which you have entered, its true abode is where Christ's resurrected Lord himself is. And so the believer's life is eternally, safely hidden with Christ. None of us fully understands the wealth of that blessing. But you will one day. You will one day. Calvin says, It is worthy of observation that our life is said to be hid, that we may not murmur or complain if our life being buried under the ignominy of the cross and under various distresses differs little from death itself but may patiently wait for the day of revelation. And in order that our waiting may not be painful, let us observe those expressions in God and with Christ. Thy life is hidden with Christ in God even now, which means our lives are out of danger, although it does not appear so to us. <laughs> Amen. Uh, some of us have circumstances <clears throat> that are devastating. And if that's where you fix your eyes, you're going to have a hard go of it. But the truth is, thy life is now hidden with blessed Jesus in God. The new life into which you have entered. Its true abode is where Christ himself is. The believer's life is eternally, safely hidden with Christ. And so what is to be more desired by us than this, that our life remain with the very fountain of life. What is your passion? That which drives you forward. Is it Christ? If it's not, you're going to crash and burn. Because the arm of flesh shall fail thee. Ye dare not trust your own. So there is no reason why we should be alarmed if on looking around on every side we nowhere see life. 
It doesn't matter what my eyes see. I know where I'm hidden and with whom. First John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. True children of God will increasingly bear the family likeness, both now as our hope manifests lives having a focused purity resembling his, and at the end when we shall be like him. Reformation Study Bible quote. And the question comes, what we've talked about today, what is this but the fullness of Christian sanctification? Justification. Praise God for what took place at the cross and resurrection. But what did that mean for how I live moment by moment, day by day? So doctrine, listen to it again, hopefully with deeper understanding. Samuel Rutherford, I have now made a new question, whether Christ is more to be loved forgiving sanctification or justification. And I hold that he is more and most to be loved for sanctification. It is in some respect greater love in him to sanctify than to justify, for he maketh us us most like himself in his own essential portrait and image, sanctifying us. Justification makes us happy, which is to be like the angels. Neither is it such a misery to lie as a condemned man and be under unforgiven guilt as to serve sin and work the works of the devil. Which one's worse? And therefore I think sanctification cannot be bought. It is above price. Now I know that some of us sitting here really don't have a clue what the difference is between justification and sanctification. I get that. But there are two huge theological concepts foundationally undergirding your salvation. Justification, one-time action of God, eternal sanctification, daily 
long-suffering, patient, also patient, ministrations with the likes of me and my attitude, words, and behavior. But bigger question, Rutherford asks, which one do you love Christ more for, justification or sanctification? I also know that the deeper question here for some of us is, do you even love Christ? Oh, don't just flippantly say it. Do you affectionately love Christ? If you can't say yes with me, Rutherford's question won't make much sense. I get that. Application. Stephen's martyrdom, they drug him out threw him off a, a small cliff and began throwing stones at him. Acts 8 or 7, 7. And where were Stephen's eyes? I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You say, oh, but he was given a direct sight vision of Christ in heaven. I know that. Is there nothing here we can learn? Stephen could well have had his eyes on the injustices done him, the hatred put on him, the murderous attempt successful to exterminate him. His eyes could have been on his circumstances. His eyes were set on things above. Mary Martha, Jesus is in the home of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. He's in one room, teaching, speaking, Q&A time, I guess. Martha comes, teacher, tell Mary to help me. Martha is so, in Christ's words, distracted with temporal things. Now, time out. Men, don't we like our wives being distracted with the temporal things of food? Yes. Track with me. Martha is distracted with necessary things. What's Jesus saying? Martha, Martha, twice. You're distracted by so many things. But Mary, Mary has chosen the better part, and it shall not be taken from her. Hmm. I speak to you, Martha. Is your giftedness from God as a Martha? 
distracting you from being a Mary seated at his feet, looking in his eyes, opening your Bible, seeking him. Martha's are God's grace to the world, but not if they're not Mary's also. To set your mind on things above. Third application. What is the ratio in your life personal between time spent in front of a screen to time spent with your Bible open? What is the ratio? If you have more time in front of a screen, you're not setting your mind on things above. You can't. The screen presents like the tree was to Eve, distractions designed to consume your attention. And it is fascinating and draws you in. The worm on the hook draws the fish too. What is the ratio? Some of us don't have a Bible reading plan. And it's not enough. Let me say this. It's not enough to read books about the Bible. If that's all you're doing, I'm worried about you. It's not enough to listen to sermons preached from the Bible. If that's all you're doing, I'm worried about you. You've got to be opening your Bible and seeking Christ in the pages of Holy Scripture. That is setting your mind on things above. Now, I lay this out to you. You need to follow three paths if you don't have a plan at all. Wisdom, worship, walk. Seek wisdom from him. Worship him. Walk with Jesus. Wisdom, start matching the day of the month to the chapter in Proverbs that you read every day, every month, again and again to seek wisdom. Worship, go to the Psalms. Start reading Psalms 1 and pray them. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Pray it, Lord, I want to be blessed. I don't want to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's verse 5 of Psalms 1. Lord, I want to be a blessed man, delighting in that. Pray it back to him. Wisdom, worship, walk. Choose one of the four Gospels. Start reading eight, ten verses, if that's all.
and say, Jesus, speak to me. Let me watch you. Let me listen to you. Set your mind on things above. For some of us who can take deeper water, there's one of our number who is now beginning to go through Isaiah looking for signs of Emmanuel. Well done. Well done. Look for the descriptions. Set your mind on things above. Let me pray. Father, we confess the glory of Christ's resurrection from the dead. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that wondrous to us is the grand indicative of the gospel. But we know there is a therefore behind it. We are as those who have been raised up with Christ, as those whose lives are hidden with Christ in you, O Father. We are to set our minds, set our attitudes on the things above. Birth in us a hunger to seek you in the pages of sacred scripture. Turn your people away from the screen exclusive to begin opening the Bibles, I pray. All to the glory of you, our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.